Chapter Sixteen of Stories in Grey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susanna Mason. Stories in Grey by Barry Payne. Miniatures Part Three. Ten. Sorrow in the Country. The poet walked along the winding lane on the hillside in springtime. A mile back, a cart had met him. A slow, heavy cart whose driver lulled in a beery drowsiness the rain slack in one drooped hand. Since then he had seen no one. On either side the hazels showed their delicate green, the bluebells grew in profusion. Under the hedge the half-open curves of the uncommon ferns still made their faithful promises. Below him lay the plantation, dusky and mysterious. Lower still, not far from the village, came the rat-a-tat of the workman's hammer, for there the trees had been cleared and some human brute was building for himself a big house where he should give dinner parties and be just about as common as other people. But for that, there was, the poet felt, a pleasure in the suggestion that the scene offered him. A sense of solitude without dreariness, of remoteness not too remote. A half-hour's descent would have taken him down to the village, humming there in the haze. A turn of the lane brought him suddenly upon a cottage with thatched roof and white walls. It stood in a little garden, old-fashioned, where the white rhododendrons and big red peonies opened slowly, a restrained yet inevitable outburst of delights. The garden merged haphazard into an orchard. The white pear blossom, most precious of all to the bees, had already paid its tribute and ended its little day of beauty. But the apple trees were glorious in the sun, healthy, sturdy Blenheims, and here and there a rare ribstone showing where a dead arm had been lopped off, dying out, the sickly mother of the finest fruit. Are there not also fine poems from men with a moral ear, and all the rest of the stigmata? And as in that old rhyme, someone was in the garden hanging out the clothes. She was hanging out the clothes, clothes of a most intimate character, with a simplicity and a total absence of embarrassment possible when facts are comprehensible, but suggestions an unknown language. The poet liked that particularly. There was nothing shirked. The beauty of the scene was intrinsic, not gained by a pettifogging trick of trimming and cutting out what was ugly. It was beautiful because it had not cared, and did not care anything at all about that. The heavenly pinkish snow from the shaken apple trees was due to the same breeze that played vulgar monkey tricks with the hanging clothes. She wore a print gown of pale mauve and a coarse apron. Neither of them, examined closely, would have been found to be quite clean. They did for working in, and it was work that threw her into a grand pose. Her head was thrown back, her arms raised high, the dress strained over the deep bosom. She would have been the delight of a sculptor, and the despair of a fashion-plate. Tall, erect, strong, shapely, she seemed as one to come back from the old days, before we grew so clever and so chétif. A relic of the healthy animal that dies out of the race as our poisonous civilization does its work. Red lips, big eyes, a mass of black hair twisted up anyhow, the melancholy, one might almost have said sulkiness, of her unintelligent expression. The poet noted them all. He noted, too, with delight, that the mouth was too large, and the hands and part of the splendid forearm were red from the wash-tub. That was right. It was all so good because it was so true, and you could afford to see everything. With the quick enthusiasm of a poet, he wondered how it would be if he stepped across the grass, took her in his arms, and kissed her, and as soon as might be, set the wedding bells a-jingling. That she would marry him, he had no doubt not for the offer of his person, an unseemly mixture of the puny and the portly, but for his position, and money, and laziness, and fine clothes, and the envy of others. It was not for his own sake that he gave up the mad scheme, though he recognized what misery the load of years with her might mean. 
It was because he felt there was something that belonged to the garden and to solitude, and that would die if transplanted. He would not even cross the grass to her with the pretext of asking his way, lest her voice should shrilly disappoint him. Rustic words and accent he welcomed as the truth, but the voice, he heard it in imagination as a concerto. Also the poet was, as poets so often are, just a little bit afraid. At that moment she turned and looked at him curiously, and with a clumsy pretense of a pause to light a cigarette he passed on. He reflected that their curiosities would be slightly different. She would ask herself if he was stopping down at the lion, and if he was one of those artists, and there she would leave it. His wonder as to her was wider and deeper. Memory for a whim marked that page as one that was to remain, and years afterward the poet, dying, recalled the scene. On the evening of the day on which he saw her, long after the rat-a-tat of the hammer had ceased, in the big, unfinished house below, when the crescent moon relieved the growing dusk, she came out of the cottage. The old people were chatting in the kitchen, and it would have been remarked if she had run upstairs. But out here one was not observed, and for a while she sobbed passionately, leaning against the trunk of an apple tree. She sobbed not on account of the poet, of whom she had not thought twice, but on account of the beery giant whom he had met driving half asleep the heavy cart. 11. A Civil War Miss Annabel Blake and Miss Jessica Winch possessed certain points of resemblance. They were about the same age and had about the same moderate income. Both were plain, slightly eccentric, sturdy, and even pugnacious. Both of them hated men and loved gardening. Both were independent, methodical, and hot-tempered. Both had quarreled with all their relations. It was chiefly on that account that at the age of thirty they decided to join their forces and take a house and garden in the country together. The relations smiled and said they would give that arrangement just a month to last. They calculated that by then Annabel and Jessica would have flown at each other's throats and parted forever. But the relations were wrong. Both of the ladies were shrewd enough to see that the only possible modus vivendi was one which, as far as possible, left to each her independence. A book of rules was drawn up in manuscript, each lady possessing her own copy. As the years went on, the rules grew in number, to meet every occasion. They were agreed to by both parties, and there were fines for breaking them, and the fines were always paid. The making of these rules caused a good deal of friction, generally ending in an even compromise. Neither lady could claim to be the predominant partner. Gradually the spirit of an accurately measured give-and-take grew up between them. The compromise might, for instance, have been traced in Rule 78, which ordained that fires in the reception rooms were permissible only between 6 p.m. of October 15th and 10.30 p.m. of the following April 23rd. It took two evenings of animated discussion to make that rule. Once made, it passed into the things beyond discussion, and there was no more trouble about it. An entire absence of anything that could possibly have been called a sense of humor helped them. Thanks to the rules and compromises, Miss Blake and Miss Winch managed to live together for twenty years. They did not pretend to have much mutual affection, but they enjoyed a little sharpness of the tongue. Perfect calm would have bored them. They had, however, a certain amount of mutual respect, since neither was a person who could be put upon, and from the similarity of their taste it was probably easier for each to live with the other than with anyone else. Besides, there was a distinct saving of money from living together, and though they were not precisely miserly, they liked good management. But in the twenty-first year, in the springtime, when the birds were singing prettily, and the blossoms were looking lovely, and nature generally seemed smiling and peaceful, the great war broke out between the two ladies. The war had its origin in the garden. 
the paths and lawns were common ground though the care of the paths was assigned to miss winch while miss blake was responsible for the lawn the rest of the garden was divided into equal parts by rule three miss blake owned and cultivated that part of the garden on the left side of the path and miss winch owned and cultivated the other half on the right side they employed no gardener and needed none these two ladies of fifty could do a piece of hard digging and no nonsense about it as well as most men there were rules that a certain proportion of each allotment was to be kitchen garden and the crops for these were to be settled in january by discussion otherwise the two ladies might have had too much of one thing and none of another this discussion was much less fiery than might have been expected the capabilities of the land and of its cultivators had been early recognized when a difficulty did arise a short squabble and a sternly just compromise settled it the rest of the allotments the flower gardens never came under the discussion at all there each proprietor by rule fifteen was supreme now it happened that miss winch in turning over her seed packet one evening came on one that bore no label and no indication of its contents miss blake expressed her opinion to give her exact words that jessica winch was a careless fool miss winch said that she had never seen the packet before and the seedman must have sent it by mistake it was probably rubbish and she should burn it she added that people who forgot to get the crumb tray repaired should not call other people careless fools miss blake said that people who burn seeds deserve to live to want bread to eat jessica said that annabel could have the packet for a penny and the money was paid annabel sowed that seed and it flourished exceedingly it was a foreign weed as ugly vindictive and prolific as a chinaman where it was put in there was the base of operations for evermore so the war began and so far miss winch had the right on her side miss blake made a heap of the weed and set fire to it on a day when the wind carried the smoke across jessica's allotment for this infringement of rule seventy she was fined fourpence jessica then threw a healthy collection of large snails across into miss blake's flower beds miss blake appealed to rule thirty five under which rubbish from one allotment might not be deposited on the other miss winch objected under the plea that rubbish meant something dead and that the snails were alive miss blake said very well and spent an afternoon in getting together an army of fat caterpillars for jessica's roses in a week's time the two ladies had ceased to speak to one another whenever speech could be avoided and took their meals separately they would undoubtedly have separated altogether and lived apart but then one day in july when jessica was hurrying to the nearest town to get her will altered she was knocked over by a cart and killed that stopped the war so miss blake having inherited all her enemies possessions now lives in the old house alone and her temper is a little more fiendish than before so the gardener says who is now called in to help he looks after the lawn and the paths and is permitted to work on miss blake's side of the garden but miss blake herself works much harder with more knowledge and with more contentiousness in the garden of her dead enemy it is on that side that most of the money is spent miss blake surveyed it one summer evening when it was at its best i think she said that jessica would be satisfied twelve his life's work the day had been spent very quietly now that the work of thirty years was finished there was none of the triumph of completion and not even the sense of relief that is so often felt when a long task is at length laid aside all through the house the tone was grave almost mournful the old man in his spare hours that science had left him had found some time to win the love of many this change frightened him there were anxious about him what would he do with his mornings now he had never been easy to interest of politics he knew nothing he thought of art generally as a pleasant parlor game for ladies science and the ties of personal affection had been the only realities for him 
and he was about to give up half of his realities. Yes, after the work would come the reward. They did not forget that. The book was not for the general reader, but it was certain of magnificent reception from the learned. It was a book that had been long expected, for which the scientific world was impatient. Yes, for a time he would find occupation in seeing the book through the press, and then there would be the honor and glory. But what after that? He had been so inseparably linked with the preparation of that book. His health had been good or bad, proportionately, as the work had gone well or ill. And it so happened that on the day that he announced the completion of the manuscript, side by side with the spoken words of cheerful congratulation went thoughts that were grave and apprehensive. The little old gentleman himself took the whole affair with a certain dignity. He gave no sign of exultation or depression. In fact, he was scarcely conscious of what his own feelings were, but he told himself that it was vulgar to expect and base to fear. After dinner he retired to the library instead of joining his family in the drawing-room as usual, and took from the deepest of the drawers in the writing-table this precious manuscript, finished and ready for the printer. The library was a large room, furnished in the simplest manner, and the simplicity was not an arranged simplicity. It was so, not in the least because he had tried to make it simple, but because he had never tried to make it elaborate. It was not the simplicity of a consciously severe taste, but the less pleasing result of pure chance. The incongruous presence of friends and relatives mingled with the essential apparatus of his studies. One wondered how anybody who wanted that big microscope could also want that violet wool mat, or the crystallium representation of a stout naiad. He had never been guilty of adding one decoration to the room himself, but if people gave him things, well, it was very kind of them. It was Aunt Alice who had given him the pair of candlesticks that he now placed on the table beside his book. They were of white china and bore views of some of the more tempting parts of Eastbourne. He had never desired them, but he used them with gratitude, and lighted the candles with a match from a box that bore the needless and insinent inscription, Strike a Light. He drew from among the sheets of his book a large diagram, full of minute detail, drawn with exquisite neatness, and peered closely at it. No, there was nothing to correct and nothing to add. To the best of his ability it was finished. He put down the sheet and leaned back in his chair. He did not share the apprehension of his relatives about his future. If he pictured it at all, he saw himself busy with an interminable correspondence arising out of his book. Not all the letters that he would receive would be pleasant. There was a deal of jealousy about, even in the scientific world. But there would be the congratulatory messages as well. The effects of the book, as he imagined them, would last for years and years, all the years that were likely to be left him. The work of preparing new editions would alone be enough to keep him fully occupied. He reminded himself that it was vulgar to expect, but in a few minutes he was thinking out phrases of a suitable modesty to use in a reply to an illuminated address from a learned body. Why not? There were thirty years' work, unusual resources, great devotion, and, well, yes, some intelligence in the book. It deserved recognition. And with this comforting thought he drew drowsy and nodded off to sleep in his chair. In his sleep he had a dream. He was present at a great banquet, and he became aware that the banquet was given in his honor, and that he would shortly be expected to speak. He had no feeling of nervousness. In his hand there were notes of his speech already written out, but he felt absolutely independent of them. He was full of the happiest ideas, inspired with telling phrases, conscious of power. At last the moment came, and amid loud applause he rose to his feet. He almost whispered the prefatory formula. This was calculated. 
Managing his voice to perfection, he became more audible, as he referred in well-chosen language, to the interest which his royal highness had always shown in the work of the society, and to the honor that he conferred upon them by his presence. Then he paused, and allowed the courteous applause to die away before getting to the real business of his speech. Raising his voice, and with a noble sweeping gesture, he continued, "'Whenever I gaze, I see before me—' And at that moment the arm of the sleeper shot out and upset one of the white china candlesticks, with the views upon them. It fell over on the pile of manuscript, the one copy of the great work waiting for the printer. Awake? No, he sleeps on and on, as though nothing had happened. When you knock over a lighted candle, the candle, except in stories, is generally extinguished by the drought occasioned by the fall. That is what happened in this instance. The precious manuscript was absolutely uninjured, except for a spot of grease which was removed by a flat iron and a blotting paper on the following day. And many a time since that night he has longed, ah, how ardently, that the flame had not failed in its work, that the child had been stillborn, that the work had never seen daylight. Within a week of its publication, an elderly round-faced German brought out another book on the same subject, the result of forty years' study, of greater resources, and of finer intelligence. The junior partner in the firm which published the little gentleman's book committed suicide, and the book which was to have been the standard work on the subject for the next ten years, fell flat and unnoticed, and the old gentleman immediately commenced another. But this is a work which will require many more years yet, and he is no chicken. 13. The End of the Story The two old ladies took a penny-weekly paper and took it very seriously. Its due delivery on Saturday morning by the village news vendor was a notable event. They fixed dates by remembering the week when the Saturday miscellany failed to arrive. A local train had broken down, and the paper did not come till the following Monday, and the earth, so far as the old ladies knew it, was upside down. They did not glance hurriedly through it, and then fling it aside. They read every word and commented sagely and soberly upon it. Incidentally, it solved a problem for them. They had never varied from their strict upbringing, and they were forbidden by their consciences to read novels on Sunday. But they were not forbidden to read the Sunday miscellany. Was it not, as its name implied, a Sunday paper? Was it not edited by a clergyman? And it possessed a serial story. They followed every installment with their keenest interest. They were critical, too, but rather of the characters in the story than of the author's work. Where he was wrong, Priscilla would say, speaking of the hero in Percival's atonement, was in going to London at all. The good bishop had warned him of the temptations which awaited him there. I cannot help feeling sorry for him. But so far as I can see from the last chapter this week, that poor boy's going to the bad. I hope not, said her sister seriously. It does not look like it in this week, but I pin my faith in that girl, Olive Lorraine. I feel convinced that we shall hear a good deal more of her, and I can see already that she is taking an interest in him. However, we shall see next week. It is just unfortunate that every week the story stops just at some point when one wants to know more, but I suppose it is unavoidable. The editor would have been pleased if he had heard that. The serial stories in the Sunday miscellany were innocuous and stereotyped. The lurid light which they cast on the high life of London was never too lurid. Virtue was always triumphant, and the end was always happy. But with the two old ladies, these stories never missed their mark. When in the very first chapter, Percival plunged into the dark pool to rescue the drowning kitten, and his father exclaimed, It is all over. We shall never see him alive again. It never occurred to the old ladies to ask how on earth the serial story was going to get on if the hero died in the very first chapter. 
On the contrary, they took a pessimistic view of the situation. Thank heaven he's alive, exclaimed Priscilla, as she anxiously attacked the next week's installment. Was he injured? asked her sister eagerly. He speaks of a strain on his nervous system, and says he's still very feeble. That Percival was pretty feeble all the way through the story. But he had a sunny smile and curly hair. Even his London excesses could not quite destroy the old lady's affectionate admiration of him. Percival's atonement was a very long serial. The clerical editor, who paid starvation prices in any case, had got a reduction on taking a quantity. At the end of six months, Percival was safely engaged to that charming lady, Olive Lorraine, but in the dim twilight he had accidentally espied her kissing another man. He did not ask for an explanation. He merely became seriously ill and moaned a good deal. The Percivals of fiction are like that. And just at this juncture, Priscilla, the elder of the two sisters, also fell ill. It was a sudden illness and ended in her death. She knew that she was dying. One Sunday afternoon she had lain for a long time without speaking. Her sister had read out to her the chapters of the current number of the Sunday Miscellany, and sat by the fireside waiting for a chance to do something else for Priscilla. In the silence the clock seemed to tick laboriously, as if the quiet of the room had nearly overwhelmed it. "'I cannot believe,' said Priscilla at last, "'that Olive Lorraine was guilty. It seems so unlike her. In the twilight a man might very easily make a mistake.' It was probably some other girl. Or, said her sister, the man may turn out to have been her brother or her father. It is, perhaps, a pity that Percival did not think of these things. I should have liked to have known how the story ended before I died. Nonsense, said her sister. You're much better. Anybody can see that. Priscilla shook her head. That night she got little sleep. Her mind was too much worried about Olive Lorraine and Percival. To the sick woman these absurd characters out of the stupid story had become intensely real. She babbled of them at times when she was light-headed. And her sister wrote a letter to the author of Percival's Atonement, and got a reply of a favorable character by return of post. It was a quite unusually good-natured author. The sister went to Priscilla in triumph. "'I thought, my dear, that your anxiety about Olive and Percival was perhaps making your recovery rather slower than it should be.' "'Yes,' said Priscilla. "'If only I knew that they were safely through this trouble, I feel that my mind would be easier. "'I have taken rather a liberty, Priscilla. "'I have written to the author of the story explaining the circumstances, "'and I have had the most kind reply from him. "'He sends me some long slips of paper on which the rest of the story is printed.' "'It is kind of him and of you,' said Priscilla. "'Very kind.' "'She seemed to hesitate.' "'Would you like me to read them out to you now?' "'No,' said Priscilla firmly. "'It is very kind of you both, but I must not take advantage of it. "'It would be irregular. "'It would even be a little dishonorable. "'To my mind it seems very much like cheating at patience. "'You are not offended?' "'No, dear. Of course not.' "'And, you see,' Priscilla added, "'I shall know the end of all the stories so soon now.' 14. The Artistic Success, Monodrama, Act One. The scene is a garden, old-fashioned, with high-hue hedges. In one of the shaded walks, Percival Joy Smith, aged eight, passes to and fro, lost in thought. He is attired in pale green plush and frills, surmounted by a foolish beef-heater hat. He has a bad loose mouth, no chin, splendid eyes, and a roomy head of queer shape. He speaks, 
Yes, if we are to be strictly accurate, I have thrown the cat on the fire, stolen the money of my governess, and told three large but unsuccessful lies. My governess is perhaps at this moment reporting my offences to Mamma. If not, she is but waiting for the return of my father, in order to appeal to the sterner tribunal. It is time that I looked out for myself. Flight, I think not. I am aware that in books about boys one runs away, and has ideas about going to sea and is, in other respects, very absurd. It may even be that such things sometimes happen, but not in the case of a thoughtful and observant boy with a sentimental mother. He knows something better, and he dislikes adventure, as a rule, and he prefers to take his meals regularly. Remorse? That is very good if it is done on a large scale, and includes the refusal of food and sleep, and is accompanied by floods of tears and lasts for days. But all this is very tiring and trying, and tends to lessen one's self-respect. It will be a better plan to say something. Whenever I say something, Mamma writes it down in a little book and puts the date to it. If there are visitors here, and I say something that attracts a little attention, I can do what I like with Mamma afterwards. My words speak louder than my actions. That is fortunate, for I find words comparatively easy. Before I tried to explain to Mamma that I was holding the cat up to the window so that it could see out, and that I dropped it onto the fire accidentally, and that I took the money to give to the missionaries, and that the lies were not real lies, but statements made in joke, before I proceed to these explanations, I should certainly say something, something that would give them color and probability. I think, on the whole, I could not do better than to go into the drawing-room with a grave face and upturned eyes and ask Mamma if the stars are God's daisy-chain. He does so. Act two. The scene is a third-floor bed-sitting-room in Dotty Street. It is furnished exactly like a third-floor bed-sitting-room in Dotty Street. In it sits Percival Joy Smith, aged twenty-five. He wears a shabby tweed suit of a large pattern. He looks dirty, intemperate, and partially starved. He smokes cigarettes, his fingers are stained with them, and he looks through his letters received by the second post. He speaks. So, the governor has found it out and stopped it. And the mater ain't to send me any more money. She will continue to write. Plucky lot of good that is without the cash. I never asked to be born into this beast of a world. It was their lookout. But if they're going to shirk their responsibilities, and I own that the mater has hung on as long as she could, I suppose I must look out for myself. And that's not so easy to look out for oneself when one has been expelled from two schools, sent down from Oxford, has lost one's character, and been abandoned by one's friends. I could dig, but I won't. I'm not in the least ashamed to beg, but I have no luck, and I should have a cart load of Miss Sendy societies down to me in no time. At the first glance it seems that all means of livelihood are closed to me. I have still a hundred of the money that the governor sent me to pay my Oxford bills when he cut me off, but even with that little capital to invest I see no occupation for me which would be remunerative and pleasing. He smokes two cigarettes, drinks a little gin and water, and resumes. There are just two things that seem to me to be left for a man of spotted character. I might join a mission and preach, or I might write a great book. In my youth, and since then, I have found the utility of saying things. It is only a question of saying things again, but to the sentimental, mother-hearted public this time. Yes, I will write a work of genius. He does so. Act Three. The scene is a small flat in Davy Street, W. It is a dull November afternoon, and the room scene is lit with wax candles, free from the rose shades so dear to the fashionable writers of the halfpenny home blitherings. 
The room is furnished with exquisite severity, and is one of the few rooms to the west of London at that time that are not overcrowded with furniture. It is an unsullied by bamboo, or the portiere, or the imitation Chippendale table for the exhibit of three and six penny silver boxes and ornaments. Percival Joy Smith, correctly dressed, aged thirty, sits at a writing table. He speaks. So here, and at my cottage in Sunning, I have everything I want, and five years ago I had nothing but debts and a bad reputation. Then I starved, and now almost my only source of anxiety is my waist measurement. Then I was but Smith, and now I am Percival Joy, the author of Stay With Me, and several other popular novels. Yes, several other popular novels. That was a beastly thing in the critical review about that. The old parrot city of excessive production, spite in the guise of kindliness. Oh, damn the thing. It's the penalty of artistic success, and one must put up with it. It's so good for one, success. To be thought of well of, without having to do much to deserve it, makes one moral. I shall write to my father and mother and say that I forgive them, though they never understood me. He does so. Act Four the scene is as in Act Two. The time is three o'clock on a summer morning. The dawn comes through a green blind and lights the shabby, narrow bed. On it, clad in bright blue pajamas, lies Percival Joy Smith, aged forty. He is bald, unshaven, wide awake and tremulous. Beside him, on a wicker-seated chair, are a medicine bottle, a glass, a stump of candle in a painted china candlestick, some letters, and a smouldering cigarette end in a jubilee ashtray. He speaks. Popularity, money, like come and like go, with both of them. The fashions change. Oh, goodness, yes, we are wearing our stories rather longer this season. Selling a good deal of adventure just now. Sin and epigrams are quite out. They are overdone. Some of the smart people are in favor of the simple pagan. Percival Joy? Oh, never ask for nowadays. It was a quick fire but it's blazed quite out, dead out. He takes up the letters and grins. They're all so damn polite. Porter regrets exceedingly that he has no work to offer worthy of my attention. Simpson thinks that to put with me on reviewing would be to cut wood with a razor. Wilton thanks me most cordially for my kind offer, but fears he has no vacancy at present. All alike. They know I'm done. My own fault? wickedness any amount extravagant living of course add to it all the rest of my perulent mess that goes on to make up an artist of my type but don't forget the kind of world it is a fine world for tailors he pours from the bottle and drinks three doses instead of one so when my landlady comes to turn me out of this place after luxury tomorrow she will be disappointed after all, one can die. He does so. End of chapter 16. Recording by Susanna Mason.